Well, if you are here for the very first time, we have been doing something all year long, kind of interesting. We've called this the whole story. We are going through the entire story of the Bible in a year. We've broken that story down into 14 different series. And we've just been making our way through those bit by bit. Do not worry if you're here and you're like, wow, I am way behind. I mean, you, you are, but it's okay. Number one, you can catch up with everything online. That's easy. And honestly, every single Sunday is designed to stand on its own because that's kind of how scripture works. Like you can read the whole thing and just be like, wow, I see God in all kinds of cool ways. You can also just open up to a page and in, in just a paragraph, you might see something or read something that speaks to you like nothing else ever has before. So every Sunday is its own little adventure. Today, we're actually wrapping up our 10th series. We'll be done with this entire thing by Christmas. Today, we're, we're almost done with our 10th series, which we've called The New Human. The New Human. This, is, this has been all about Jesus and really the season when Jesus steps into the story in, in an obvious way. It's really always been about Jesus. As we've looked at this whole year, so many things have pointed to Jesus. There's been prophecies about Jesus. There's been all these, these hints, all this foreshadowing, but now we're at the moment when Jesus shows up and he is, he's new. Like there's never been anyone like him. And that's obvious from the moment that he goes public, Jesus is something new. He does things that no one has ever done before. He says things that no one has ever said before and no one really knows what to do with Jesus. Like his own disciples, the people he picks to follow him, you think they ought to be like experts on Jesus? No, they get Jesus wrong left and right. It is after three years, they still do not understand who they're dealing with half the time. There's even these very specific moments. Like one time he performs this miracle on a boat and there's a huge storm. He makes the storm stop and his disciples say, who is this man? Who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They're trying to figure out who he is. Now, Jesus' enemies, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, the people who think they have God completely figured out, it's a good reminder to us to make sure we're never one of those people. They don't like Jesus, they oppose Jesus, but they're always asking a different question. Their question is, who does he think he is? They're always asking some version of that. Jesus will do something, he'll say something audacious and bold, and they'll say, who does this guy think he is? How dare he say that? How dare he claim that? And the reality is both the Pharisees and the disciples are asking the right questions. We should ask the question, who is this man? Who are we dealing with? Because he's new, he's different. There's never been anyone like him. We should figure him out to the best of our ability. And maybe a really good place to start is to explore who he thinks he is. Who does Jesus claim to be? Who does he say that he is? And for the last several weeks, that's what we've been looking at. Who is Jesus? Who is this, this new human who breaks every category that we've ever had before? And we looked at it from five different angles. Today's the fifth. Our first was, was this simple fact, Jesus is the one. You might be like, the one what? Well, Jesus is the one that, that the scriptures spoke about. Jesus actually said once that you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. It's always been about Jesus. He is the one that everyone was waiting for. And then we moved on to the fact that Jesus is the word, and that's kind of an interesting thing. If you weren't here that Sunday, give it a listen. That is a, a very specific claim to divinity. That the reason that Jesus can do the miracles that he does is because Jesus is divine. He is a man, 100%, but he is also God. And he makes that claim and he, he does all kinds of things to back that up. Jesus is the, the word. It's from John chapter one, really interesting if you've never read that before. And then we moved on to the fact that Jesus is the, the way. He's our way, he's our way to have a relationship with God. 
He's our way to forgiveness. He's our way to mercy. And here's what's so awesome about Jesus. He doesn't tell us the way. He doesn't point to the way. He is the way. He takes us where we could not go. He does for us what we could not do for ourselves. He's our way. Last Sunday, we looked at the fact that Jesus is the truth. He is the truth. What he says is right. What he says is good. What he says is true. And it is strong enough truth to build your entire life on. And today, we're exploring this idea that Jesus is the life. Jesus is the life. But by the way, those last three elements of who Jesus is, that all comes from one bold statement that Jesus himself makes. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me, John 14, six. It is right, but it's a bold thing to say. Like, who says that? Like, honestly, who comes and says things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life? I mean, if any person running for office ever said something like that, we ought to have like alarm bells ringing in our minds because that's like audacious. That's a bold thing to say, but Jesus said it. In fact, Jesus had a bit of a habit of saying things like this. It's not like a one-time thing for Jesus. Let me read you a few examples and see if you can catch on to a theme here. John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. John 6, 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. It's very reminiscent of something Jesus says in John chapter four to a woman that he meets at a well. Verse 10, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. A few verses later, he goes on to say that anyone who drinks this water from this well will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water that I will give, the living water, they will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. John chapter five. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. John 10, 10, one more. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. You guys probably caught the theme pretty quickly there. Anyone just wanna shout it out? What is it? What's the theme? What do we see over and over again? Life, there you go. You weren't confident in that, but it's okay. You don't have to be. I did put you on the spot. He's life. He says it over and over again. I am life. I am the bread of life. I give living water. If you believe in me, eternal life. You will pass from death to life. It's, it's audacious when you think about it. Jesus says over and over again, I am life. And I have the ability, he says, to grant you eternal life. It's interesting, I've spent this entire week just thinking about this. Because I'll be honest, the Jesus series, it's a lot of pressure for me. Like, I'm kind of okay if I mess up stuff about ancient Jewish kings. Like, I can live with myself if I get David a little bit wrong. But if I get Jesus wrong, that's kind of a bigger deal. Um, and I'm sure that I have in some ways, but I'm trying my best. I've just been this entire week trying to say, okay, Lord, like, what does this really mean? What is this really about? You are life itself. You are eternal life. You grant life. I've been thinking about life all week long. And it's kind of funny because tomorrow, I'm gonna to spend most of my day thinking about death. Let me explain. <laughs> Megan, my wife turned, uh, well, I won't tell you how old she is. Uh, that's, that, I, woo, that was close. <laughs> that was really close, guys. 
She turned whatever age she wants to be a couple of weeks ago. And for her birthday, the one thing that she wanted was to go to this, this exhibit that's in Atlanta that's all about King Tut. It's like this really cool King Tut experience. It's not the actual artifacts from his tomb because you can only look at those behind a glass wall, but it's exact replicas of everything for his tomb so you can kind of walk around and experience it. Now, I turned, and I'll tell you my age, I turned 40 just a few months ago, and I can tell you that the one thing I would not want to do to celebrate my 40th birthday is to spend time in a tomb. Like, that is not where my head would be. That might give me an existential crisis at 40 years old, but she is not 40, so she has different filters. So I've been spending my, my whole week thinking about life, and then tomorrow I'm gonna be in this giant exhibit of death. I thought that's kind of interesting. The timing of that is, is funny. And so I was doing all this research this week too about like the King Tut thing, and I think we all, we all know the basics of the pharaohs and the pyramids and stuff, but it's kind of interesting to think about because some things that I'm gonna see tomorrow, for example, I'm gonna get to see replicas of all of King Tut's treasure. He was buried with cool stuff. Like, like, for example, there's these gold statues. I think we have some pictures of some of the stuff that I'm gonna get to see tomorrow. Yeah, like, like this. That's, that was in his tomb. Just shoved into a corner, a cool jackal gold chair thing. Um, those little, like, egg-shaped things, those are, like, mummified pets is what that is. Who wouldn't wanna be buried with all your dead pets, right? There's that. There's some other treasures I'm gonna get to see. Uh, let's see, this next one is, like, this cool dog golden thing. And over in the corner there, in, in Tut's tomb was like this large model boat, just a big boat in his tomb, which is awesome. Some of you men love your boats and you never even thought, I could be buried with my boat? You could, you could. I don't know how you can work that out, but apparently it's possible. King Tut teaches us that much. And then this is the big one, his sarcophagus. Actually, I guess it would be sarcophagi, I don't know the plural of that, but King Tut was, was buried not in one, but in three coffins stacked inside each other like Russian dolls. Okay, now, like one of those, they're all filled with gold and all kinds of things. One of those is actually hewn out of solid gold. And just the gold alone that was used to make that is estimated to be around $13 million. In fact, all the gold and jewelry that King Tut was buried with in today's valuation of just the raw materials, close to a billion dollars of wealth that he was buried with. And the reason why is because in, in the ancient Egyptian idea of death in the afterlife, you wanted to ensure that in the afterlife you were living the life. And so their thought was, well, if I, if I get buried with all my stuff, right? If I get buried in my, my like Egyptian man cave with all my cool stuff, I get to enjoy that in the afterlife. I get, I get the, the pets, I get the cool chair, I get my boat. It was their way of trying to control death. Trying to cling to life, which is something that we've always been doing throughout history as, human, as just humanity, human beings. We've always tried to deal with death the best we can, usually not very well. And for the most part, that's just been a process of worry, of control, and, and control is always related to fear, so the fact that you know, King Tut's trying to control death probably tells you that he was really afraid of dying and clinging to life, just holding on to it. And it's not like it's just the Egyptians. If you read the Bible, it's kind of interesting. In many ways, the Bible teaches us the history of how human beings have dealt with death. You go way back. Look at like Job, for example. 
Job chapter 14, verse 14. Job is, he's described as the godliest man on the earth. He is so godly, he is so awesome that God himself brags about him. Like God actually tells Satan, like, hey, check out Job, he's, he's doing awesome. Like, just be, be impressed. You, you have to admit, Job is amazing. But then Job experiences tragedy, and in the midst of his tragedy, Job chapter 14, verse 14, he says, can the dead live again? If so, this would give me hope through all my years of struggle, and I would eagerly await the release of death. Does that sound like someone who is at peace with the dynamic between life and death? Who has this peace that says, I'm good? No. And Job was the godliest man on the planet. And he struggles with, with death and life and how to hold on to life and how to deal with, with death. There's a king named Hezekiah. We actually studied Hezekiah in our Messy Majesty series a, a while back. And Hezekiah is one of the good kings. That is not a high bar. Um, but he was one of the good kings in the history of Israel. But he was struck down with an illness. It almost killed him. He survived it. But in the midst of that that illness, this is something that he wrote. We have it recorded in Isaiah chapter 38. He says, in the prime of my life, must I now enter the place of the dead? Am I to be robbed of the rest of my years? Never again will I see the Lord God while still in the land of the living. Never again will I see my friends or be with those who live in this world. My life has been blown away like a shepherd's tent in a storm. It has been cut short as when a weaver cuts cloth from a loom. Does that sound like someone who's at peace with death? Someone who has confidence in, in life and the fact that life is, is greater than death. It does not. Even the, the godliest people who were, who were surrounded by prophets and they knew the scriptures, even those people struggled mightily to deal with death. Humanity has always had a hard time with this life and death dynamic. We cling to life, we try to control death, or we just try not to think about it. And some of you are mad that I'm talking about it. Forgive me. But then Jesus comes along and he, he talks about life and death in totally different terms. Like he says things no one's ever said before. Let's look at one. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. It's like the opposite. Jesus says, don't, don't cling to life. Don't try to hang on to it, to control it, to try to ensure that it all goes according to plan. No, just give it up. Let it go. In fact, if, if you give up your life, you'll gain it. That's a, that's a strange thing to say. I think we can all admit that it was strange 2,000 years ago. It's, it's strange today. It's not the way that people tend to think about, about life as this thing that you're just like, yeah, how can I give up as much of my life as possible? That's not the way that we think, but it's the way that Jesus thought. And, and I have this thought pretty often with Jesus, either he's crazy or he knows something that we don't. Jesus says in John 10, 10, we'll go back to this one. We looked at it earlier. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. He tells people who are alive that if they believe in him, they will have life. That's interesting, right? right. If, if you put your trust in me, if you believe in me, you will have life. 
Now later he says, life to the full, some translations say abundant life, but first he says, if you believe in me, you'll have life. He's telling living people to put their trust in him so that they can have life, that, that's odd. I have a good friend who has a very successful history in sales and he once told me, it's like sage wisdom, he once said, it's hard to sell an umbrella on a sunny day. That tracks. It's hard to sell an umbrella on a sunny day. It sounds kind of like what Jesus is doing, trying to talk to living people about having life. And he says this multiple times, right? We read a few where he says, hey, anyone who hears me will, will pass from death to life, that I have life in myself and when the dead hear me, like how can the dead hear? He's, he's, by the way, he's talking about us, like human beings. When the dead hear me and believe, they will have life. Jesus is, is promising us something that it seems like we already have, unless that is, unless Jesus means something very different when he uses the word life. Unless the kind of life that Jesus is describing is not what we typically associate with, with life on this earth. It's something different. It's maybe a different category. I think we have a, an idiom today that sort of helps us understand this idea. Like, have you ever heard someone say the phrase, you haven't lived? Maybe someone finds out you haven't experienced something that in their mind is, is a must, and they say, oh, you've never done that? You haven't lived. Last week, I found out that my wife had never seen the movie The Goonies. I, can, I, I had the same reaction. Thank you. Thank you, because she didn't think it was a big deal, and I did, because we're children of the 80s. <clears throat> like, we're kids of the 80s. How many, how many 80s kids do we have in the room? Just out of curiosity, yeah. How many 80s kids have seen the Goonies? You're, you have to, you're, you're supposed to. And, and like, I found this out because we were looking for a movie to watch with our kids and we've, we've kind of found as many movies as we can. And I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm just gonna say this, I'm the worst at remembering what's actually in movies. I'll be like, it's totally appropriate for the kids. I remember it well. And then we'll watch it and like, I'll just be like, I'm so sorry, I had no idea. I think I saw this on cable and it was edited out like as a kid, I'm, my bad. But I found out my wife had never seen The Goonies and I said, babe, we, we have to rectify this right now. You haven't, seen, you haven't lived, you've never seen a movie, basically, if you haven't seen The Goonies, so we watched it. She thought it was okay. I do this a lot with food. Um, I, I, love, well, I love food, but I love my, my favorite type of food is Indian food. A friend of mine introduced me to Indian food 20 years ago and it, it was like flavors I had never tasted before colors I had never seen. It was kind of like that type of experience. And so now when I, when I have a friend and I find out they've never had Indian food, I'm like, well, what? You've never, you've never had like legitimate Indian food? Granted, I've never been to India. I don't know if the Indian food I've been eating is legitimate. Um, it's here in Georgia. Surely it's authentic. I don't know. But, but I'll, t I'll take them. I'll basically force them to go. I'm saying, you've, you've never eaten that. Like you haven't lived. Come on. And I'll, I'll take them. I've basically forced about a dozen people in my life to go to an Indian restaurant with me on, on a moment's notice. And I sit there and I watch them as they eat. And it's, it's kind of creepy, but I stare at them. And, and I'm just waiting for that moment of enlightenment. Like I'm waiting for that moment where they go, whoa, wow, because that's what happened to me. And I want them to have that experience. When we say that someone hasn't lived, what we mean is, man, you haven't experienced the best and whatever you've called life up to this point, it's, it's just like a lesser version because you've, you've yet to experience this. I think there's some of that in what Jesus is saying. When he promises us life and he says, come to me and you will have life, he is talking about an entirely different kind of life. A kind of life that is so full, 
It is so satisfying. It is so packed with meaning and wonder and goodness that when we experience it, it's like whatever we've called life up to this point isn't life at all. It's new. It's a whole new kind of life. Second Corinthians 5.17 says that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life has gone. A new life has begun. Now, if you don't mind like nerding out with me for a second, the Greek language has two primary words for new. There's, there's the word neo, which means new, but like a new version of something that has existed before. So if, if you see a new model of a car, right, it's this year's model, it is neo new. But then there's this other word, kanos. And this means new in quality, like the first that's ever existed before. There's never been something like this. It is that new. So like imagine it's the early 1900s and you're riding a horse and you see the first car. You're just on a path and a car goes by you and your brain would just be like, what was that? It was that new. It's a whole new category. And which word do you think it's using here when it describes the life that we have through Jesus? You got it. Again, not confident, but it's okay. <laughs> Kanos. It's, it's not just some new and improved, slightly better. It's like, I'll give you life, but you'll be a little bit happier. No, it's, it's like a whole new kind of life. It's something that Jesus describes as eternal life, which doesn't just mean life after you die. Yes, that is a part of it. Eternal life is everlasting life, but eternal life, it means something so much more than that. It means that right here, right now, we can have a life that is informed and inspired, and we might even say empowered by eternity itself. It's eternal life. It's like God's life in us. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that when we put our faith in Jesus, a new life has begun. It's not waiting for us when we die. It's a new life that we can have access to right now. What is this new life all about? Like, what are some of the features? Well, Romans chapter six, verses four through seven says that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Apparently, this new life that Jesus gives us through faith in him, it is free from the power of sin, which is why none of you have sinned this week. Isn't that amazing? <clears throat> it's why when I gave my life to Jesus at 10 years old, never sinned after. Not all, no, like all my best sinning was after I gave my life to Jesus. But here's what it means. It doesn't mean we don't mess up. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle. It doesn't mean that we're impervious to temptation. It doesn't mean anything like that. But what it does mean, and this is powerful, it means that sin does not have power over us. That we don't have to. If we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we want to. Sometimes we just do what we feel like doing even though we know it's wrong. I really hope I'm not the only one that that statement applies to. Good. But we don't, we don't have to. We are not powerless 
against temptation, against sin. No matter, no matter what our culture teaches us, we're, we're just not. We actually have a say, we've been given a say, we have power, we have freedom. And so we actually hear things, it's interesting, um, you'll hear phrases in culture all the time. Things like, uh, I can't help the way I feel. Or I, I can't, gosh, I, I can't change who I'm attracted to. People use that to justify all kinds of things. And I think what they're saying is true. Because what they're essentially saying is I'm, I am a slave. I am, I am enslaved to my emotions. I am enslaved to my desires. I can't help it. And actually scripture teaches that, yeah, that's sort of the human condition apart from Jesus. And through Jesus, through faith in Jesus, there's this new life that, that is placed inside of us, this new life that begins in us that is free and it's free to choose. So we do have a say. That doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it's simple. That doesn't mean that we always know the right thing to do, but it does mean that as we grow, as we mature, we have the ability to live the life that God calls us to live to the best of our ability. And when we fail, we have grace and we have mercy, but we're not slaves to sin. This, this new life, it is a life of freedom, true freedom. Some of us need to, to hear that and believe that because it is easy for me, I'm sure it's easy for all of us to believe that no, I'm still just as, as powerless as, as everybody else. No, if you have Jesus, there is a power inside of you. You may not feel it, you may not understand it, that doesn't really matter, it's there. Because the same spirit, scripture says, that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you. And that spirit, that is not, that is not bound by anything. Right, there's, there's a dynamic, and I'm going off on a bit of a tangent, but I'll bring it back, I promise. There's a, a dynamic, we're gonna explore this a lot here in a few weeks, in the New Testament especially, this idea of spirit and flesh. And flesh would be our, our normal human desires apart from God, just the stuff that we feel like doing. Some of it's good, some of it's not. And then there's the spirit. That's that new life that, that Jesus puts inside of us. And we are, we are challenged so much in scripture to identify with our spirit and to speak in terms of, of the spirit that's inside of us. Romans says that when we put our faith in Jesus, God's actual spirit comes and joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And so, you know, I've, I've struggled with all kinds of things in my life. Man, I have so many issues. Like so, so many issues. In fact, my daughter this last week I'm gonna have to pay her $10 for telling this story because that's our deal. Um, I, picked up, I picked up her and I picked her friend from Dance Up. They're nine years old and, and uh, I, I'm like the dance dad. It's great, it's my dream come true. Actually, I actually really like it. I don't know anything about dance and so I just watch her and I don't know if she's doing it right or wrong. It's great. I'm just like, wow, that's, a, that's great. That's awesome. And I pick her up and I take her home and I, I bring her friend home because they live in the same neighborhood and I was listening to my music on the drive and I was, I was into it. I was enjoying it. And I was trying to get them into it. You know, I'm trying like, hey, let's have some fun on the drive. And we got home. Uh, my daughter looked at me and said, dad, you embarrassed me. You embarrassed me. I'm so embarrassed by you. That's what my daughter said to me. It was bound to happen. And it did. And you know, the reality is what, what happened in that moment was uh, I was just being like the, this goofy version of myself that comes out from time to time where I sort of like, hey, I'm gonna do my thing and I'm gonna force everybody else to do it too. You know, and I've always been like that. And it's easy for me to use that as an excuse sometimes to just be like, oh, I'm just sort of like the, I'm just like the outgoing goofy guy. Ha, 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 here we go. I'm, I'm, Megan used to tell me all the time that she hated being around me at social events because I was just, 
I would not stop talking and it was just, I was loud and as an introvert, she just wanted to hide under the table. And I used to say things like, well, it's just how I am. This is, this is just who I am. I'm just, like to my daughter, hey, I'm so sorry that I embarrassed you. This is, this is just how I am. But that's not true. It's how my flesh is. My spirit is not a goofball. My spirit does not get insecure in social settings and compensates for its insecurity by just being the life of the party. That is not the Holy Spirit. That's my flesh. And I've gotta stop speaking about myself as if I am my flesh. Like let's, let's say you, let's be honest. Let's say you have an addiction. Let's say you're addicted to some type of substance. It's easy to say, I'm addicted to this. And that's partially true. Your flesh is addicted to it. The spirit inside of you is not. The Holy Spirit does not have an addiction. And that spirit lives in you because you put your faith in Jesus, a new life is inside of you. And that new life, that spirit is not bound by anything. And it takes a long time to work that out and figure out how do I live that out in my life? And there's no easy answer for that. But the truth is through faith, through prayer, and through just trusting God and sticking with it, you will learn to live out of your spirit, out of that new life inside of you and you're not a slave to your flesh. And so the next time I take my daughter home from dance, I'm not gonna embarrass her at all. I'm gonna be like the dad who doesn't speak. I'm gonna be that guy. And that is only gonna be by the power of the Holy Spirit, if you know me, okay? That's the only way that's gonna happen. What else? What else is this new life about? Well, let's, let's go on to Hebrews chapter two says, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had, past tense, the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. So this new life inside of us, it is, it is not just free from the power of sin, it is free from the power of death, even to the point where we don't have to be afraid of death. That's, that's hard. It's understandable if death freaks you out. But the Apostle Paul, one of the, one of the most passionate followers of Jesus that has ever lived, someone who wrote a huge portion of the New Testament in Philippians chapter one, I'm not gonna have this on the screen, but just track with this. Philippians chapter one, he's in prison, he's facing execution. And he writes something very interesting. And it's actually something that we don't have any other examples in history of someone saying something like this before Paul. He says, I'm torn. And I'm paraphrasing, but not that much. He says, I'm torn. There's a part of me that wants to stay here because I think that I have purpose. I think there's things that I can do and it would be good for you if I was still here. But there's this other part of me that wants to go. He uses that word, go, longs to go and be with the Lord, because I know that would be better for me. It's almost like Paul is saying, man, I, I really wanna die, but I mean, I probably still have stuff to do. I don't know, I'm kinda torn. And no one talked about death like that. Job didn't talk about death like that. He was the godliest man on the earth. He's like, if only I could know whether or not there was life after death. And then you have Paul who's like, oh man, I'm not sure which one I want. I don't know if I wanna keep living or dying. It's like, ah. Like what changed? Well, what changed is Jesus. In between Job and Paul was Jesus and he lived and he talked about life and he promised life and he said crazy things like if you believe in me, you'll have eternal life. And then he died and then he got back up and Paul had an experience with the risen Jesus. 
He saw Jesus, and when he saw Jesus and he experienced Jesus, that fear of death began to melt away. The same thing happened to all of Jesus' disciples. After he goes to the cross, he's crucified. They're terrified, and rightfully so. Their leader's been killed. They had to have thought things like, man, did everything he say, was it all just a fraud? Was it, is it all untrue? Because he made some promises, and now he's dead, but then he got back up, and their fear went away, and they became the most bold human beings you could ever imagine. And they took the message of Jesus to every corner of the earth that they could take it to. And it didn't matter how many times they were beaten, tortured, thrown in jail, murdered and martyred. They kept going because they weren't afraid of dying. And you don't have to be either. You don't have to be afraid of death. But a lot of us are. And that's okay. God has so much patience with us. But I'm just saying that if you put your faith in Jesus, there is a life inside of you that that will never expire. You have, <laughs> that's like an infant amen is what that is. Um, and I'll just put it this way. It, it all comes down to a simple question is, have you experienced Jesus? Yes. Well, you have, but <laughs> you know, I. I I honestly, have you, have you put your trust in him? And many of us, yes, we have, absolutely. And I'm not saying you should just because I'm telling you that you should. So what if a person stands on a stage and tells you you should put your faith in Jesus and read some Bible verses? No, the people that, that experience the new life that Jesus offers, the people that, that put their trust in him and experience freedom from the power of sin and the power of death, they experience Jesus. I do believe that God is meant to be experienced. Now, that doesn't mean that you see a risen Jesus on a street like Paul did and you're blinded by it. That's kind of hard to ignore. But I've had moments in my life, and I'm sure many of you have as well, where I can say, yes, I've experienced Jesus. I've seen, I've seen prayers answered so specifically and so like handcrafted. That's the best word I can think of. That it wasn't just like, oh, a thing happened and that kind of solved the problem. It was like exactly what needed to happen happened and it was obvious that it was orchestrated. It was obvious it was God. And someone might say, well, yeah, but how do you know that was Jesus? Because he's the one they prayed to. He's the one they asked and that happened. I've seen that happen so many times in my life and in the lives of others. And yes, there are times when people pray to Jesus and it doesn't happen, but just, just because it doesn't happen all the time doesn't disprove the times that it does. I've experienced Jesus that way. I've had, I've had moments in my life, and I'm sure many of you have as well, where God's presence was so real. I'll be honest, I, I grew up in church. I've had moments that I look back and I go, okay, was that God or was that like just the emotionally charged moment? Because sometimes it's easy in church to just like create a moment, you know what I'm talking about? Like if I started yelling right now, just like yelling, 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 someone's gonna start clapping either because they're uncomfortable and want me to stop or they like it and then everyone else claps because I guess that's what we're doing and you feel something. I've had moments in church where, not here actually, but like in other experiences where I'm like, was that God or was that just sort of the emotion of the moment? But I've had other moments where it was just me by myself and I have, I have felt God's presence in a way that is, I mean, I, you could tell me I was crazy a hundred times and I'll just be like, agree to disagree. It was real. And I just want you to know that if you've never had an experience like that, maybe it's here, maybe it's today, maybe you're like, man, there is something different. Yeah, that's that, that new life. Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, I stand at the door and knock and anyone who opens the door, 
I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. That is his invitation. And if you put your faith in Jesus, you know that. If you haven't, you can. That life, this freedom, it's, it's, it's yours because Jesus is life. He is the life. And if you have put your faith in Jesus, then live the life. In fact, worship team, you guys can make your way out. We'll, we'll wrap up. Live the life. Live it. Like sometimes as a, as a Christian, I'll be honest, sometimes I'm like, man, even this week, I'm like, man, I'm talking about life and I'm reading what Jesus says about life. Do I always feel that? The answer is no. Do I always feel like I'm experiencing like, yeah, I am completely and totally free. Temptation has nothing on me. Death, pff, yes, I have high cholesterol and blood pressure. Who cares? No, that's not how my brain typically, it doesn't work that way. Because the truth is, we still have flesh. And right now we have to learn how to do it. But, but if you have faith in Jesus, you can, you can put your trust in the fact that the same power that raised him from the dead, as I said earlier, it, it's in you. And you can cling to that and you can believe that. And the next time you get discouraged, the next time that you're frustrated with your spouse or you're frustrated with your kids or you're frustrated with your job, and you're tempted in those moments just to have this attitude, this negative outlook on life, or you believe that everything is, is wrong, you look at the world and you're afraid because crazy things are happening and there's wars and there's all kinds of things. By the way, Jesus said, yeah, there's gonna be wars and, and rumors of wars, that's, that's the world. Every time we look at the news and we get freaked out, the truth is, if you have faith in Jesus, you don't have to go down that path. You have, you have something greater inside of you. Scripture says, greater is he who lives in me than he who is in the world. You have a greater life inside of you. You can, you can just stop and breathe and rest in that. And just be like, I don't have to get all bent out of shape. I don't have to get worried. I don't have to be afraid of anything because I have a relationship with Jesus. I believe in him. And he, by the way, is alive. He is alive. Death did not stop him. And death won't stop you either. He's the life. He is the one, he is the word, he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. And he gives life to all of us. We just have to put our trust and our hope in that. And so to wrap up this morning, we're gonna take Lord's Supper. And if you, by the way, if you missed this, there are cups at the back table. There's bread and juice in the cups. And if you forgot, totally okay. There is room to go get it right now. People do it all the time. But we finish every single Sunday by taking this little meal. And, and it's, it's a really appropriate thing to do even in the context of today, this idea that Jesus is the life. Revelation 2.7, Jesus speaks. He says, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. You know, it's interesting that the first people God ever created, they received life, eternal life, by eating from a tree. It sustained them, it, it gave them life. And God told them to eat freely. And it was by, by eating from that tree, whether you see that literally or, or as a symbol, it was by eating from that tree that gave them life. It wasn't just some automatic thing within them, they just had it, it was something that they had to receive. And I find it so interesting that Jesus asks us when we get together to take this little meal to remember him. That's why we do this every week, because Jesus asked us to. And every week we get together and we have this little piece of bread and this, this cup of juice. And it's a reminder that just like Adam and Eve had to go to the tree of life for sustenance, for their spirit, so do we. So do we. Jesus is life. And we go to him 
day by day, week by week with faith. And we take this meal, not because if you miss it, you don't have life this week, but as a reminder that he is the one who puts life into us. Just as we take this into our bodies and it becomes part of us, we put our faith in him, he's part of us. And we have a life that death nor anything else in this world can ever snuff out. It's beautiful, it's different, it's new, and it's powerful. So let's take the bread and let's thank God for it. Father, we thank you for this piece of bread and what it means, what it represents, your son, and his body broken for us on the cross. A payment for our sin, purchasing freedom for us and forgiveness and mercy. And now in this moment, a reminder that we have life, that you have won life for us and you have given us life. You say that the wages of sin is death, but you took those wages upon yourself, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Thank you for this, Jesus. Let's take the bread. Let's thank him for the juice. Father, we thank you for this cup. We thank you for the, the juice that represents the precious blood of your son. Throughout all of scripture, sin was always dealt with by the shedding of blood. And it was always the blood of someone innocent. And Jesus, you became the final sacrifice and you are innocent and pure and beautiful and holy and good and yet you died for us. And you didn't just take our punishment away, you won life for us. You give us new life, eternal life, Lord. You are life. And as we take this in, we thank you and we believe you and we trust you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray, amen.